grass is not a picture of something that endures. All flesh is like grass. It's not saying man lasts forever. It's saying man is really temporary, right? So uh, there's that picture in verse 7. In verse 10, we have this description of, uh, what do we see kind of a comparison in verse 10? Anybody? Yeah, so exalted the horn like that of a wild ox. What's that a picture of? Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah, so there's power, authority. We could even say something like strength. And so that's the comparison there to the, to the wild ox, right? So um, then we see in verse, uh, verse 12, there's a picture there, a couple of them, of the righteous man. What's he compared to? A palm tree, okay. Flourish like the palm tree or grow like a cedar, okay? So there's a parallel with the tree, and it kind of extends into verse 13 and verse 14. Um, interesting imagery there. We'll talk more about it in a little bit. And then in verse 15, we have kind of a metaphor. It's If you notice the words in italics, potentially in your Bible, when it says, He is my rock, um, that's a, a, a simile is this is like this. A metaphor just says God is this, right? And uh, so it's even this abbreviated metaphor where he just says, my rock, and he's addressing God, speaking of God, okay? Uh, what is that a picture of? When it says God is a rock, what's that a picture of? Read. Potentially that he endures and he's steadfast. Okay, good. What else? Foundation. Foundation. So we throw out a word like security or safety, those sorts of things, okay? Strength, yeah. So there's all those sorts of ideas kind of wrapped up in that. What sort of repeated ideas do you think we might see here in this psalm? We didn't read all through it, so if you need to do that, take a minute and kind of look through maybe the first few verses, see if there's any common idea in those. Okay, God's creation is good, which leads to what response? Praise. Okay, so we should praise. So we see praise, particularly in those first few verses. Maybe also verse 5 is a reason to praise, and then um, that there's an expectation of praise when we get down to verse 15. What's kind of going on in the middle part in verses 6 through 9? What are the, all those repeated thoughts about or kind of building on each other? Okay? <coughs> it's contrast between God's character, he's just, and man's wickedness, right? And then when we come to the last part of there, of the psalm, there's a description of the, uh, of the righteous. How are, they, how are they described? We saw the picture of the wild ox. And, okay? Yeah, yeah. So if, if we were going to think about this, it'd be like a picture of like, if we were going to put it in our country's context, it'd be like a redwood and a bison or something like that, right? Not that there's many of those left. But it'd be like, these are both pictures of strength, right? 
So in contrast, the wicked, where it's their foolishness and they're going to be destroyed, the righteous are strong, but all that's still connected with God, and um, he's the reason for it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to the structure in a moment. What kind of psalm do we think this might be? Yeah, I mean, this is one that I kind of struggle with a little bit because there's elements of praise, right? But what else is there? Wisdom, right? So with wisdom psalm, there's, there's, there's overtones of like Psalm 1, right? So there's praise and thanksgiving to God, but there's elements of wisdom of this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. I think there is expression of trust. Uh, just quick review. Song of trust tends to be a response to God's deliverance for a specific individual. This is more proverbial, if you will, although it's a specific individual talking, he's saying the righteous are this way and the wicked are this way. So if we were going to bring all that together, it would basically be a praise psalm, but all the reasons for the praise are kind of like these wisdom kind of elements, right? So this is one of those examples where it's not nice and neat and it's clearly one or the other, but I think wis uh, wisdom kind of as part of a praise psalm is probably the closest um, and as long as we get the point of the psalm, it's less important which specific type it is, right? Uh, but it's just kind of a helpful tool to, to, to group them together. What are some truths about God that we see? He's worth, he's worthy of our praise. God's worthy of praise, okay. Norma? God's faithful, okay. Jonathan, the same thing? Okay. So God is worthy of praise if we link those together because he's faithful, all right. Um, Okay, there's an element of needed, uh, what's, God's just, okay. And God shows his justice how in the middle part of the psalm? Okay, so God's exalted, okay. Yeah, so God judges the wicked and exalts the righteous, often in the same moment, I guess we could say. So I think about 2 Thessalonians 1 where it says God's going to come and judge the world in flaming fire as his people and himself are exalted. So it's all happening in the same moment. And sometimes the emphasis is more on the punishing of the wicked and sometimes the emphasis is more on the exalting of the righteous. But those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. They can often happen in the same event, whether it be a battle or, or whatever else. Uh, things that are true about us from this psalm, or about humanity in general. Wicked. Yeah, by, by default we're wicked, okay. Smart. Yeah, so the lack of knowledge is not necessarily complete ignorance, it's a sort of a willful ignoring of things we know to be true, maybe along the lines of Romans 1. And if we are wicked, what's the result that this psalm says? Destruction, Destruction right? We'll die in our pride, right? If we're righteous in contrast, if we're wise, if all of those sorts of things, if we praise God as we ought, then what sort of outcome do we see there? Right. Now, depending on if any of you were sick in the last few weeks, you didn't want to be very green, right? Or see what came out in your Kleenex to be very green either, but we're not talking about that. We're just, but a healthy tree, right, has lots of sap, 
And this, even in this picture in verse 14, yielding fruit in old age, that's not typical for uh, like a fruit tree. They tend to kind of fade away after a while, right? Um, and then the, the, obviously this idea that we've already mentioned of needing to praise God. So let me bring some of these ideas together. Um, here's the main point, I think. Praise God who debases the wicked and flourishes the righteous. I was just checking to see if I actually updated the title on your sheet because earlier it was a placeholder and I thought maybe I'd forgotten. So. Um, so we ought to praise God who debases the wicked and flourishes the righteous. First of all, praise God for his loving kindness and faithfulness in all his works. Um, verse 1, it's good to praise God. It's good to give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to your name, O Most High. Just a statement of fact. Um, and I don't think for the most part we dispute this. Is God worthy of praise? I think we'd say yes. It's not that we don't know that we should. It's that sometimes we get too busy complaining or being distracted by things to do it, right? So it's not that we argue with the premise. It's just sometimes implementing it. Uh, and not just to praise God, but to praise God all day long. Declare it in the morning and at night. And, you know, this too, sometimes people have gotten into arguments about, you know, should you have your time with God first thing in the morning? Should you have it right before you go to bed? Should you do it at both points? The reality is we should have an attitude of praise for God all day long, right? We should have an attitude of prayer to God all day long. And so that's, I think, what the psalm is getting at. And then there's this idea of with instruments. Now, obviously, there's people who've said, well, it only talks about instruments in the Old Testament, so we don't do that anymore in the New Testament. Um, to me, that seems like a little bit of a backwards thing, because if God was good with instruments in the Old Testament, I don't know why he suddenly wasn't in the New Testament. And there's a more likely reality that it's not brought up a lot, if at all, in the New Testament, because it's building on the foundation of the Old Testament. Uh, when there were things that were clearly differences from the Old Testament, God was usually pretty clear about coming out and saying, this happened then, but this is what's happening now, like that kind of a thing. So, uh, there are not. Yeah, the piano was seen as the devil's instrument for a while and all of those sorts of things. I point that out not to get into big arguments about what instruments are appropriate, but just to say this, there are appropriate expressions of praise to God vocally and with instruments in the context of every culture throughout history. Figuring out what those are can be a more involved process, you know. So, for example, um, let's say, you know, in David Livingston's day, you have somebody who gets saved and had been involved in voodoo and was playing the drums in voodoo and all that sort of thing. Does that mean that that same person can't then use that same instrument to praise God? Not necessarily, but he has to think about potentially what's going on with that in his context. He can't go play it in the context of the voodoo ceremony. I mean, I think the whole thing about meat in the New Testament makes that clear. But he should find some way to praise God vocally and instrumentally. And, you know, not every person is, I don't want to say qualified, not every person is particularly skilled at either or both of those things, and that's okay. So it's not a, I don't think the point of the verse is primarily everybody has to play the lute and the harp and the lyre, but rather, these were common instruments in their day. There should be people collectively and all together at some point, people using these instruments to praise God and other people join in in various ways. And the reason verse 4 is even more important. Why give thanks, sing praises? Why declare what God is like? Why do it with instruments? Verse 4, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. 
This is, I think, the thing that we struggle with sometimes as Baptists, right? It's not that we don't praise God. It's not that we don't tell people about God. It's not that we don't use instruments. Sometimes what's lacking is the gladness part of it, right? Um, now, this is not a reason to go to crazy excesses and to run wild up and down the aisles because we feel like we have to whip ourselves up into an emotional frenzy. I don't think most of us are trending that direction too dangerously, right? I think our bigger issue is, are we falling asleep as we sing the song? Are we, are we just sort of singing it and just not really thinking about what we're saying? Because if these truths sink into our souls that God has loving kindness and God has faithfulness, that ought to excite us and that gladness should spill out, right? And that's what I think Ephesians 4 or 5 and Colossians 3 are getting at. It's when God's word dwells in you richly, it spills out of you, right? And when it's not dwelling in us, it's not going to spill out. We're not going to be particularly glad. And there's any number of reasons why that might be the case, but we ought to be glad about what God has done and sing for joy about how God has worked. And that can be expressed in a variety of ways. Secondly, we should observe how the wicked perish foolishly because God is great in his victory. Observe how the wicked perish foolishly because God's great in his victory. In other words, God's victory is the reason for the wicked perishing. He starts out and he sort of brackets it with, How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. Uh, there's another place where it says, Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Um, God says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. Paul says, how unsearchable are these things that God has done. Um, we should marvel at and just recognize this, the, the fact that God's works and God's plans are not unknowable, but incomprehensible. Like we can't grasp all of it because God is God and we're not God. And even in eternity, I don't think that's going to be true, that we suddenly immediately understand sometimes people say well when we get to heaven it all makes sense i don't think it will at least not for you know the first half of eternity right can we even say that uh my point is just to say god being god is as amazing and marvelous thing so god's works are great and his thoughts are deep in contrast to god's wisdom that is so profound that it's beyond us here's the idea of the wicked a senseless man has no knowledge nor does a stupid man understand this. This reminds me a little bit of, um, I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but some of the back and forth between Luther and Erasmus. Erasmus is a very dignified, scholarly sort of guy, and he says, you know, here these really profound things, and Luther just says, basically, you wild idiot donkey of a man, why would you say such foolishness against God? And we say, well, we shouldn't talk that way. Well, I mean, it's clearly in this psalm. I think we need to be careful about not saying things simply to shock people, but God does not call us to mince words about things that are clearly foolishness. Hopefully that point was clear when we were going through that section of Isaiah. Isaiah's point is idols are stupid, stop worshiping them, right? We should recognize that. And along the same lines, those who assume that the wicked flourishing is a sign of God having forgotten about them and letting them go their own way, and even being happy with them, forget the fact that the scythe's about to cut it all down, that the fire is about to burn it all away, right? And so, it is foolish short-sightedness to say here, or what it says, I think, Second Peter 3, and maybe Jude as well, that, oh, well, God hasn't sent the judgment yet, so maybe he forgot about it. 
It's a sign of God's mercy, not of God's forgetfulness. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of patience. And so the wicked fail to see that the very fact of them being exalted is going to lead more certainly to their destruction. There's this irony that with certain plants, you let them grow and you cut them back. You let them grow and you cut them back. You let them grow and then cut them back. They run out of energy to grow ever again. I think that's a little bit of the picture that we see here. Um, in contrast, God in verses 8 and 9 is on high forever. His enemies will perish. They'll be scattered. God remains exalted overall. So observe how the wicked perish foolishly because God's great in his victory. And then the last little section here, rejoice that the righteous flourish because God is a rock. Rejoice that the righteous flourish because God is their rock. God exalts the righteous. Verse 10, you've exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I've been anointed with fresh oil. We say, I don't like the idea of oil being poured on me. It's just what they did in their culture. It's a sign of blessing and abundance and um, all sorts of other things, right? Uh, being anointed with oil was a sign of kings being chosen. Having oil to anoint your head was a sign that life was going well and you had lots of produce and provisions and all those sorts of things. And even beyond that, God gives the righteous victory. So not only do they have blessing and prosperity, but they have victory. My eye has exulted over my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. Almost as though it's like they're over there getting knocked down and you even have to lift a finger, right? And then there's this idea of like a tree, verses 12 through 14. The palm tree, the cedar, it's planted in the house of the Lord, flourishing in the courts of our God, still yielding fruit in old age, being full of sap and very green. Um, when we look at this, it is fascinating to consider because why is he flourishing? Because of where he's at and who he's with, right? Because of God. And how extensive is that flourishing? It's even to old age and even in a way that's unexpected. Um, and we see the pictures of this in the... In the uh, in the Old Testament, I mean, going back to the illustration of Abraham and Sarah in connection with Isaiah 49 and 50 and so forth, God reassures them that he is able to even work miraculously through those who think that their time is past, right? And here, he's speaking to those who, from very young to very old, God can work in all of them and accomplish his purpose through them. And so, just by a quick way of application, our society disregards the very young and very old. You're no good, there's no point, there's nothing you can do. So we let kids be kids till they're well into their 20s and 30s, and we basically say after you're 60, you know, there's not much for you to do. You might as well just go sit in the corner or get out of the way, right? That's not the attitude of several of you are thinking that's, you know. It applies to most people in this room, right? Well, my point is, most of you in this room are under 15 or over 60, right? And that is okay, and that is not a sign that God has done with you. So, my point with that is to say, don't buy into the lie of our society and our culture that says, you retire or you hit a certain age and there's nothing worthwhile for you to do, so veg out, go on trips, and watch TV until you die. God wants more from you than that. God wants more from you than that when you're a kid. And yes, there's a lot of ways in which society has changed and most of us are not, you know, maybe some of you are, not growing up 
learning how to drive when you're 10 and bringing the crops in in the summer and all those sorts of things. But there is a degree to which God has things for you to do as well. And the way that that's going to happen is if you're righteous and following after him. So it's not about how young or old you are. It's about your relationship with God. And then the last point of why all these things, bringing it back to the main point at the beginning, so that they will praise God. Why does God bless the righteous? Not so they can say, look at me and what I've done, but so they can say, look at what God has done through me. God is the rock, no unrighteousness with him. I'm going to praise him going back to the beginning of this. So praise God who debases the wicked and flourishes the righteous.